Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week we read from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 18a, where Paul begins the most loving and encouraging letter we can fathom to the people of Philippi. We imagine the intersection of longing and compassion that Paul describes and locate that feeling somewhere deep in your gut. We spend a long time turning over the idea of overflowing love that is rich with knowledge and insight, and we wonder about the inverse, pursuing knowledge and insight with the express intention of becoming ever more capable of love through our learning. This is not the express goal of most learning ventures, but maybe it should be. Thanks for listening. Hey, Bobby. How are you? Hey, Amy. I'm great. It's good to see you. I have been saving a joke for you. Oh, yeah. And this is a joke that my daughter told my husband, and my husband told me, and I wrote it down. And he was like, of course you're writing it down. You work with children, and they would love this joke. And I was like, no, no, I'm writing it down for Bobby. (laughs) (laughs) And the Bible Worm audience, apparently. That's awesome. And the Bible Worm audience. Okay, Mm -hmm. ready? It's actually a couple jokes. Okay, I'm ready. Why did the chicken cross the road? I don't know. To get to your house. Knock, knock. Who's there? The chicken. (laughs) Did you have high expectations for this joke? I mean, Oh, it keeps going. Wait, I mean, this yoke. (laughs) I mean, by the end, you just want to, like, jump out the window. You're like, stop talking. It's so bad. I'm going to have to teach my daughter this one. She's really into these jokes right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a good one for that. Yeah. Well, she told one last night. Oh, we got, do you ever just ask Google to tell you jokes? Just like, hey, Google, no. tell me a joke. Yeah. I don't. When, when my kid wants a joke and I What kind of music do bunnies like best? Hip hop. <laughs> <laughs> I totally did not mean for that to happen. But that I was like, how was. did you set that up? How did you know I was going to tell you a bad joke today? <laughs> that was amazing. Um, amazing. Yeah. Sometimes Google just sits next to me and enters into my conversations. Did you get the joke? Very creepy. I did get it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Classic. I have to tell my daughter that one because she loves bunnies. And so that was a bunny joke. Okay. I have a joke, a real joke for today. <laughs> okay. It's not funny. Like not related not. to our, related to our actual text? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Knock, knock. Who's there? Paul. <laughs> Paul who? Paul who sits in prison in an undisclosed location. <laughs> ha ha! That was an amazing joke. That was I love that an one. amazing transition. Truly amazing. We are in a new book today. We're in a new it's book. It's actually quite book. an old book. book. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. We are in an old book that is new to me. The Letter of Paul to the Philippians. That's it. Yeah, flippy cheese. Isn't that, <laughs> isn't that what you think? I can't. I can't not think about that every time. Yeah, the letter of Paul to the flippy cheese. Mm-hmm. And we're starting at the very beginning. We're starting in chapter one, verse one, and reading through the first part of verse 18 today. And instead of instead of diving in with a bunch of background information, we decided we're going to dive into the text and then we'll intersperse the some yeah. background information as we need it. Yeah. So I am reading from the NRSV, and I will pick up in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so funny reading 
reading that aloud, it really is striking or, I don't know, more noticeable that we are in a different genre. Yeah. You know, I'm, like I'm reading it and I'm like, where's the verb in this text? Like, where's <laughs> yeah. the, this is not a sentence. Yeah. Yeah. So what do we need to know either about Paul's practice of letter writing or about Philippi that would, I don't know, help us lead, lead into this a little bit? Yeah, it's definitely a genre shift. And, you know, when I teach this with my students, one of the things that we do is we look at kind of the genre of an ancient letter and we talk about the ways in which Paul is using and playing with the genre of an ancient letter. It's actually pretty interesting Mm. for those who like to think about such things. Um, (laughs) Here we have, you know, the very quickly we have the um, the address. um, So from and to, and then we have a blessing, which which I really love that that ancient letters sort of at least Paul's letters begin with this sort of blessing. The first thing he's going to do, um, grace and peace to you. Like, I just, I, I really like that. You know, mm. my letters are like, you know, our emails are like, Hey, <laughs> here's what I need from you. You know, it's like th- to take the time and say, uh, may the grace, and, uh, may grace and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Like, that's really lovely. kind of sets the tone for, mm. for what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Paul's letters, you know, typically the way that Paul functions is he founds communities and then he leaves them to go found other communities. And then he mm-hmm. has correspondence with the communities that he's left. So we read a couple of weeks ago in Acts chapter 16 about at least that version of the founding of the church in Philippi. And so now, you know, we don't quite know how the book of Acts relates to the actual historical journeys, but there's a memory there that Paul founded that church and here we are. Paul is someplace now uh, writing back to them and sort of addressing issues that have arisen in, in Philippi. Okay, this is maybe a little bit of a strange question, but like, was there like a, how did these letters get back and forth? Was there an ancient mail service? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there actually there actually was a courier system, yeah. Mm. These letters most likely were carried back and forth by people who knew Paul. So we've, we've get, we get reference in this letter to somebody named Epaphroditus who's been carrying correspondence back and forth. So we don't know for sure how like I- any individual letter did, mm-hmm, did mm-hmm. get place, place to place, but it seems like this was probably carried by a courier, but probably somebody within one of the churches, either where Paul is or where Paul is writing to. People mm-hmm. going back and forth between Paul's communities. Yeah. We've alluded a couple of times to the fact that we don't really know when or where this letter was written. Mm-hmm. Right? Or even really how many letters there are in Philippians, if, if we're just going to put it all out there. Do you have thoughts about that conversation that's going on amongst scholars? I mean, what I've read is, is that there's... There's no real consensus where he was, and a lot of the the trying to guess where he was imprisoned is sort of how far is it from Philippi, and how <laughs> yeah. far do we like how far do we think is is realistic for letters to be going back and forth? I think yeah. that's the question. And and what I've as far as I've read, there's there's we don't know, like we don't know yeah. where he was imprisoned. Yeah, I mean, we learn later in the letter that he's in prison, and we mm-hmm. it seems to be the case at the end of this chapter, which we're not going to read, that he is maybe facing a capital sentence. So he's, he's thinking mm-hmm. about if I live or if I die. And so, and he also talks a little bit about the Praetorian, maybe the Praetorian Guard in Rome, but maybe also just the Roman infrastructure in whatever city he's in. So yeah. those are kind of our clues. And then, then thinking about how far was it? Uh, from wherever mm-hmm. to Philippi, those are the questions. The answer is that sometimes, you know, Rome is the sort of traditional place that Paul was imprisoned in Rome at the end of his life around 60 CE or a little bit after, and maybe he was writing back from there. Sometimes it's argued that this was written in Caesarea Maritima um, mm-hmm. on the Mediterranean coast, sort of in just north of Judea, near Galilee, Antioch, that, or not Antioch, but um, Tyre and Sidon, that kind of area. And sometimes it's argued, and more recently, I think, that this letter is actually written from Ephesus, 
Mm-hmm. We don't really have evidence that Paul was in prison in Ephesus, but Paul talks about being in prison kind of a lot. And so it's like reasonable to think that maybe he was. Yeah. And so that's the question is, you know, which one of those is most accurate? And then that affects like, when were we in Paul's life? If, it, if he's in Rome, he was at the end of his life. If he's mm-hmm. in Caesarea Maritima, he's probably earlier in his life. And so we don't quite yeah. know where this letter fits amongst Paul's correspondence or in Paul's biography? It's an interesting question, and I, I don't know enough, you know, I haven't read enough of the letters at this point to, to have a sense of it, but to, to ask sort of how that impacts our reading, like it might yeah. sort of impact what we understand Paul to have experienced in his, you know, sort of worldview yeah. or, I don't know, but in some ways it's, it's interesting to read the text as sort of floating around instead of exactly placed and, and try to imagine what lens would make the most sense. Yeah. There's also, as I was mentioning, an argument about how many letters are preserved in the book of Philippians. Mm-hmm. There's this, it's really, it's kind of a jumpy letter. My favorite jump is in chapter three, verses one and two. Paul says in three, one, so then brothers and sisters, be glad in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to repeat the same things to you because they will keep you on track. So he's like, he sounds like he's like so happy with them. <laughs> and then the next verse, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the people who do evil things. Like he just like, oh no, I forgot this one thing. <laughs> and then he goes on for two more chapters. And so a lot of people argue like, look, there's a big break there. The only way you can really explain that break is that there was one letter that got attached to the end of a letter. One was very, you know, ironic yeah. and one was very antagonistic. And here they are. There's another possibility of a third letter that's in 4, 10 to 20, some scholars will argue. Other scholars think this whole book of Philippians as we have it is just one original letter to the church in Philippi and that Paul, you know, like he's he's dictating these letters. He might have dictated them over a period of days and, you know, he's sort yeah. of making his way through the letter and then he wakes up the next morning and he's like, oh, wait, right, dogs and, and different pipers. Mood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we don't really, we don't really know that either. And, and my, you know, if we're trying to reconstruct the life of Paul, all these questions are kind of interesting. If we're just trying to like yeah. work through like, what's the significance of this letter? It's less relevant. Although to your point, whether he's writing this early on in his ministry when everything is fresh and new or at the very end of his life when he's in prison in Rome and kind of sees the writing on the wall. Like it does change the way you process what Mm -hmm. he's saying to them. Yeah. I did have one, just one word really that stood out to me in these first couple verses that felt a little jarring to me. And I wonder if it's jarring to you. Mm -hmm. And it actually is not reflected in my translation. In verse one, Paul and Timothy are identified as servants of Christ Jesus. And then there's a little note that the Greek word is actually slaves. Yeah, douloi. Mm-hmm. And for some, I mean, I know that certainly in the Hebrew Bible to be described, you know, the, the word is the same, to be servants to God, to be slaves to God. And, and that is a, an important paradigm for coming out of slavery in Egypt and serving God instead of serving Pharaoh and all of that. But something about it, I think, maybe in the context of all of our conversation about really overthrowing power structures, I don't know that that word and the whole reference to that that's that way of thinking seemed. I, I don't. I don't know. It was. It just. It felt strange to me. It felt foreign to me in this text. Mm. Have I don't. Does it feel jarring to you? Does it feel like that is precisely the overturning, the fact that we're using the word slave in a system that is totally not built on that kind of power? I don't know. How do you how do you sit with that word? Yeah, no, that's such an interesting question. And, you know, Paul in other letters refers to himself as an apostle of Christ. And so here to refer to himself mm-hmm. as a slave of Christ is an, is an interesting choice and not the one that Paul always makes. Mm. It is also the case that he refers to the people in Philippi. So first in verse, at the end of verse one, God's people in Christ Jesus. So they're people. Mm-hmm. And then your translation was bishops and, and deacons, deacons, right? Yeah. But there are notes on that too. <laughs> that Maybe that's not really what those words are. <laughs> well, the common English Bible is supervisors and servants. Mm. The Greek words are episkopoi and diakonoi. 
which mm-hmm. are the words that are going to be used for the yeah. church offices of bishop and deacon, there is a question about whether in Paul's lifetime, those offices yeah. really existed. We tend to think right, they didn't. Right, right. They have a different resonance now. Mm-hmm. So the CEB translation of supervisor and servant or like people who are, you know, sort of in charge of the community the, and people who are carrying out the work of the community. Mm-hmm. And so to think of those three, like we've got slaves, we've got supervisors, we've got servants, you know, and Paul's putting himself in the position of the slave and the people to whom he's writing in the sort of higher status positions. I don't, I didn't answer your question even a little bit, <laughs> but I well, sort of added you, some you made other it more thoughts complicated, it. So there's yeah. that. That's good. That's yeah. always good. That's my, that's what I do. That's what we both do actually. Yeah, it is. I do wonder a little bit if, you know, Paul being in prison, m- maybe he's facing the capital sentence. You know, he- he's clearly not living life. <laughs> he's not living large yeah. or whatever, you know. He's been through some stuff. He is going through some stuff. And so yeah. to think of himself, you know, his earthly status, you know, and his, like, I don't even quite know, like being a slave of God and you do the things that you are told to yeah. do no matter what happens to you. Yeah. Like that yeah. seems to be kind of the way he's seeing himself right here. What, whatever we might think about that related to, you know, social hierarchies and whatnot. But that's, that, that seems to be Paul's that make, That's really helpful to me. That, and that makes a lot of sense that like he's at this moment where he is, you know, both maybe recognizing his lack of power and also, you know, Paul, he, he never, as far as I've seen, he never really complains about his yeah. fate. And, you know, presumably... This is this is not what one would really want in a in a sort of just like base, basically human way. Like you wouldn't yeah. choose this for yourself unless you were really. I'm I'm having trouble finding words. I want to say devoted to, but it's more than devoted to. It's like you 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 don't have autonomy. You have you are totally under yeah under the power of of in this case of of Christ Jesus yeah. I don't know. It's it, that that's that's helpful to me. Thanks, Bobby. Yeah. I'm gonna hold on to that as we move on. One other way of kind of getting at that is, you know, we live in an honor shame culture. Well, when I say we, I actually was meaning mm. Paul, but actually, we maybe we do too. Yeah. Where you know, like you judge the success or failure of people by the outward appearances of success or failure, and so somebody who got thrown in prison for what they were doing, yeah, kind of would have been socially on the you know, on the outs, like, oh, well, that person, whatever, they're like a loser, you know, winner's going to win, yeah. <laughs> loser's in prison. Yeah. And so we'll see Paul in this letter. He's actually trying to work with that. Like, okay, people from the outside think this about me because of where I ended up. And mm-hmm. so he is doing a little work to reframe that. Like my, my being in prison is actually positive. Like it's a, it's a sign that, that I'm doing the right stuff. Mm-hmm. He's probably responding at least partially to people his opponents or others who who think that he's a failure because he's in prison. And so referring to himself as a slave of Jesus here may, like my appearance, the, the appearance of my social status from the outside is not truly reflective of mm-hmm. what's going mm-hmm. on. Like I'm, I'm meant to be a slave. Like that that's mm-hmm. who I am. So interesting. Okay, that's really helpful context. Okay, should we move on? See what else he has to say to the good people? Let's do. yeah. Okay. So I am picking up in verse three. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. So here's where we actually learn that he's imprisoned. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so struck, Bobby, in that first verse. And I don't know if this is a big deal or not. I guess that's for us to decide. But that it doesn't say, I thank God. It says, I thank my God. Mm-hmm. How does that change it for you? That's an interesting question. I think to me, it just makes it feel a little more personal. Yeah. 
I'm curious how it strikes you. No, I mean, I think that's right. I think, but then it it goes on to be become clear that this really is like a shared, it's their God yeah. too, you know? Yeah. So it's, so it's interesting to start it out as, as personal. Mm-hmm. And then I'm not, I'm not really sure what to make of that. I feel like it's a, I'm not sure what to make of that. You know, one thing that we probably should say, and I don't know if it's relevant here or not, is that the church in Philippi seems to have been composed primarily, exclusively of Gentile converts to Jesus, mm-hmm. not of Jewish converts to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so I don't really know if that matters, but, you know, and there is a sense in which God, who Paul is talking about, was Paul's God before God was the God of the people in Philippi. That's interesting to think of it almost as like this sort of, uh, you know, I, I I can try to read into it like I think the God of my ancestors kind of yeah. like that God that I've had sort of all along that now you also yeah. share and, and worship. Yeah. My God who is also your God now. Yeah. I like that. That's interesting. And it adds a different, another layer, I think, to yeah. where Paul's head might be at this moment. Okay. So the next thing that really strikes me in this little section is I want to say sort of the the sense of time. Mm. So it's not it I guess I'm looking, you know, it has there's we get the sense of time beginning in verse 5 that there's this sense that like from the first day that Paul encountered them until now, like you sort of start to get a timeline that goes mm-hmm. from that day until now. But then He goes on to say, the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. And it starts to, it like starts to create this timeline in my Mm -hmm. head. Whereas I might have thought before, there's like a moment of conversion and there's like the before time and the after time. And they're just sort of two different states of being. Mm. And the completion happens at the moment of conversion. Yeah. That's not what this is that's not what this is envisioning. Yeah. What when he says that that they're moving towards some kind of completion that will happen sort of by the day of Jesus Christ. You'll be done in time. Mm-hmm. What is yeah. that what do you think that looks like? Yeah, so I mean Paul is an apocalyptic Jew who now has come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah. And so he has an anticipation of Christ returning and sort of bringing the kingdom to heaven. I'm sorry, bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth kind of in its fullness. Yeah. And so I think what he's got in mind is that the believer comes to belief and now they got work to do. And so they're carrying the gospel and they, they're going to get it done before Jesus comes back. So, but, but, but what's the work? Like if they've accepted Jesus, what do they have to do? Oh, I think it's the spreading of the gospel. Like, it's not about them. Ah, It's about, like, you've been my partners in the gospel, I think means you have been supporting me. You've been giving your money. You've been proclaiming the gospel yourselves. And you've started some good stuff, but you got to keep it going so that it gets, reaches its fullness. That's the way I read it. Not, I don't read it personally, although it's kind of interesting to think about it personally. I see. So it's not necessarily bring it to completion in the people who have already converted. Like, so it does have both that element as that I was sort of referring to as like, there's a moment of conversion and there's a before and an after. And once you're after, you kind of are complete yourself, but there's still this ongoing work of, of bringing others to that point. Is that what you're saying? So yes, I think that's right. And also, now that you're sort of pushing on this a little bit, there is actually a Christian understanding. We talk about it in the terms of justification and sanctification. Mm. Justification means like in that moment in which you either accept Christ or realize that Christ has accepted you, however you want to talk about that, then the sort of the work is done, like you are made right with God. Mm-hmm. But then there's a process of conforming ever more closely to what Christ is really like and that kind of ideal person that you could be in the fullness of Christ that takes on, like continues on until Christ fulfill, like Christ makes that complete. And so I think that's, I, I like that. There's, so there's a personal way of reading it. Like you've, 
you've made the crucial first step and now you are becoming ever more Christ-like and that will be completed. Mm-hmm. And also you have begun to do the work in the world and that work is going to press on and, and become completed. I, I like thinking about it in both of those ways, actually. I think that's really nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, no, that that's really interesting. And I think there's a verse later that we'll talk about when we get to it that I think would, could lend credence to that, that second layer also. Yeah. The other thing that really stands out to me from this first section of text is at the end of it in verse eight, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Jesus Christ. And I've been really sitting with this, Mm. like holding that phrase, like the meeting place of longing and compassion. I long for you with compassion. Mm. It's a little it, they feel like diff- they're like those two ideas kind of sit in different parts of my mind. What do you think? I'm so curious as you think. Of, I'm so. I'm going to interrupt your question and ask it back to you. I'm so curious when you're thinking about that intersection. I just I love the way you're starting to think about this. Like, where does that come out for you? I mean, okay. He, here's where I've started to to think about it. Maybe there are sort of two levels to it. There's a word in Hebrew, chesed, that is often mm-hmm. translated as loving kindness, but that translation is sort of falling out of favor. And people say instead, loving connection. Like chesed is, mm. is that the, the drive to be connected to someone in a loving way. But it's not a verb. So I'm trying to think of like a, verb form of like striving for chesed that would that would like help me like feel a I mean a longing like that just like that like activates my guts like to long for something to like crave something I don't know if I have I don't know if I have very good words for that in English the Greek that's used there for this your translation has as compassion is splagnon which is like in your intestines. <laughs> mm. uh, it's, it's actually a really interesting word. It's sort of like uh, rachmaim in Hebrew, like compassion, which is Yeah, like, which is like a womb word. Yeah. Yeah. It's like my, ins- like my guts are longing for you or something That's like that. That's so like, interesting because as, as I was explaining the word longing, I was like holding my guts. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, you can't, yeah, yeah. you can't see that, but it's like, it's a very like, it is a feeling that is like deep in your body. Yeah. I just have not associated it so much before with compassion, but that's actually really helpful to me to have the like rachamim, like the, that womb sense of love sort of tied to that gut longing. And I don't know, try to figure out what those two things feel like together. What a feeling for Paul to have. Yeah, but interestingly, it's the gut feeling of Christ Jesus. Right, so it's not with his, he doesn't, he feels affection for them with the guts of Jesus, right? Oh, yeah. What does that mean? Which like, is really, does that mean like, really uh, like, the, like the feelings are like God level strong? Or does that mean, what, is, what does that mean? Yeah, or he and Jesus are so in sync that sort of he feels longing or affection in the way that Jesus, like in the depth of Jesus's longing. I think there's, I don't quite know where to go with that, but I think there's a lot. Like, because Jesus has mm. compassion for you and Jesus has got so I. Yeah, or like trying you. to like go, I know I'm like obsessed with the metaphor of the the body of Christ, but trying to imagine yeah. like Paul is is the intestines of Christ right yeah. here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it like, that's really that's what he is embodying in this text, like just that pure longing and a kind of nurturing longing. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we, you know, we talk a lot, or not a lot, but about the, you know, desiring the things God desires or desiring the things that Christ desires. And here it's like having compassion for or feeling deep in your gut, the things that God and or Christ feels deep in their gut. Like we we use that kind of language. Yeah but not in exactly this way. And yeah. I kind of I kind of like the opening there. Yeah. It feels so like 
it's so not intellectual, so just sort of primal, like so yeah. embodied. Yeah. I really love that, you know, this whole paragraph, just the tone of it, like how, like it's just, this is the Thanksgiving, which is kind of, you know, just a part mm. of, a, of a letter. But Paul's, you know, like just taking the time to say, I am so thankful for you and I'm grateful for our past history. I'm looking forward to our future history. Like I, I feel you in my guts in the way that God feels you in God's guts. Like mm. there's just such a like, I don't talk to very many people in my life this way, I guess is yeah. what I'm thinking about. Yeah. And it's very powerful when you do or when someone talks to you this way. And I love the process that Paul is engaging in. Like just I'm going to acknowledge how much I appreciate you, how grateful I am for you, how much I love you. One of the members of the Bible Room Collaborative was talking about just using this passage as a way of like a pastor saying this to their congregation. I'm yeah. so grateful for you. Or a con you can imagine a congregation saying this back to their pastor. Like, yeah. we are so grateful for you. Yeah. We're saying it to each other. Like, what a powerful thing that would be. Like, we're all doing our best, you know? We're living it. We're living our life day to day, doing the best we know how. Yeah. And to affirm that in each other and to say, I'm so grateful for you and this, this work that we share. I think I there's something that. really rich. I, I love that. I think that is beautiful. And I think imagining that happening at a moment when Paul is, is vulnerable and who knows where he is in his life, but he's in prison. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Those moments do especially call upon us for that kind of reflection, yeah. but, but we, we ought not wait for those, for those moments. That's beautiful. Hi everyone. It's Bobby here from Bible Worm. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. Amy and I started Bible Worm a couple of years ago because we wanted to create a space where we could talk deeply about the Bible in ways that bring together our academic backgrounds in biblical studies and our deep engagement with communities and people of faith. We decided to make this resource free because we want everyone to have access to sound biblical scholarship that connects biblical faith to everyday life. We hope you're finding the podcast fits that need. That said, while the podcast is free, making it is not. Amy and I and the rest of Team Bibleworm spend a lot of time and energy studying, recording, and editing the podcast to make it freely available to the public. If you enjoy the podcast, and if you find yourself in a position to support our work, we hope that you will consider becoming a Bibleworm supporter for as little as $4 per month. For a bit more, you can also get early access to episodes, weekly liturgies, video Bible studies, join a monthly discussion group, and more. We realize not everyone is in a position to support the podcast. But if you appreciate our work and want to support us, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast for more details. Thanks so much for listening, and now back to this week's podcast. Shall we carry on? Let's carry on. Let's carry on. Okay, so I'm picking up in verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. I love here that, you know, and may maybe Paul will go on to give really like specific advice and rules and, you know, what exactly that's supposed to look like. But I love here just this general, I feel like this is the ultimate blessing. Like may may you overflow with love and oh, be yeah. able to discern what you need to do. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's it. That's what it's all about, you know? And so we can talk about how I discern it and how you discern it and how I think you ought to discern it and blah, blah, blah. But this is, this is really all there is. And I love that connection that you're pointing out and that Paul is making between knowledge and insight and love. Mm -hmm. Those three things don't always go together for us, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and right. the goal here is the overflowing of love, which is rich with knowledge and insight. And so the kind of the more you know, the more you love, the more insight you have, the more you love. And, yeah. you know, I was, you and I, well, I don't know about, I was going to say academia trains you with the hermeneutics of suspicion, right? Yeah. So oftentimes 
the more you know and the more insight you have, the more critical you become. Mm-hmm. And I don't think this is saying like stop being critical uh, or like thinking critically, but I do think it is saying if your knowledge and your insight are not producing ever more love, they're not oriented in the right direction. I love that. And I love, I thought you were going to go in a slightly different direction, but related that the more knowledge and insight you have, the better you know how to love. Like, what does love mm. look like in yeah. this situation? What is, yeah. you know, what, what kind of compassion is called for or what, you know, love, love is great. Love is great in theory, but what should it actually look like in this in this situation? What is needed in I this love moment? That. Yeah. So let the knowledge and insight that you seek be knowledge and insight about how to love. How to more. love. I yeah. love that. What a blessing. <laughs> no, I can't say I love that because it sounds ridiculous. But <laughs> yeah. No, it's <laughs> hmm, that was insightful. I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, that is a real blessing. And what a prayer to have for somebody. Like, I pray this for you that all your knowledge and insight will lead you to love even more. Yeah. And then that also helps sort of inform, you know, I asked before about whether there was a process unfolding for individuals here. And there's another line in this section we just read, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless. Yeah. That, you know, taken sort of out of the context of the rest of it sounds a little... Um, like maybe the, maybe the, oh, I'm just going to say it. It's probably, maybe it's wrong, but then maybe, maybe the sin wasn't all dealt with at the moment of acceptance of Christ and that there's still some kind of sinful nature to be dealt with or, or something like that. That was like out of, out of the context of this conversation. That's how it first struck me. Like Mm -hmm. that you, you need some further refinement before you're really ready for that day. But then putting it in the context of like, may your knowledge continue to grow and inform the way that you love in the world. Yeah. That's also a process of unfolding. Yeah. But feels much less shamey. Yeah. (laughs) I guess that's the technical term for it to me. Do you think we can fairly read those things together? What you're making me think of is this sort of like, Here's the way it is in my head right now, is on the day when you kind of realize, accept Jesus, at that moment, God is ready for you. And so, you know, maybe God was ready for you before that. It depends a little bit on your theology, but sort of, you don't have anything left to prove. Mm -hmm. Then the next process of like insight, knowledge, love, like it's not like, are you ready? Like, you know, like you're still growing into that, right? You still have some developing to do, not so that God will love you, but just so that you can become the, the full creature who God already loves or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So I don't read this sort of blamelessness as like, if you don't get there, then you're going to be in trouble. Right. But like, now that now that you have realized how much you are loved, may you grow in that until it comes to completion. Yeah. And what a more joyful life to be able to live in a in a state of love instead of constant frustration and critique. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I'm always trying to do with Paul's letters is, you know, these were written to communities. And so I'm, when people read them individualistically, my first mm. instinct is to say, no, this is about the community, mm-hmm. which I think is not wrong. I think that is right. Mm-hmm. And also what I appreciate you're doing is saying, but it's also about individuals, right? So like it, it has to function in both of those ways. I tend to overcorrect because a lot of times people read it only as about the individual. And so I, then I say, no, it's really about the community. But I think the, the way that we're reading it right now, which is all of these things play out in you and me and everyone individually, and also Mm -hmm. in us as Mm -hmm. a collective, Mm -hmm. it has to function on both of those levels. Mm -hmm. Or it doesn't really work. I think that's so important, Bobby, because I i mean, love is a great idea and just a hot mess when you actually try to do it. Like communities yeah. are messy and it's hard and it's not clear how to, how to best love someone in the moment. And it's not clear even how to love your own children sometimes. What does love look like? So I think that's a really helpful reminder that we're, we're not talking 
just about what's going on in your own mind, but how it lives in the community. Yeah. Can you read verse 11 again? Yeah. Having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. So what what so the C, the CEB divides their sentences differently. Paul writes in these long sentences that you have to figure out what to do with. Mm-hmm. But verse 11, I pray that you will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Mm. The thing that I'm sort of playing with in my head is like in your translation the the fruit of righteousness is something that you produce yourself. Like you when you get your head on straight, mm-hmm. you produce the fruit of righteousness. Yeah. I think so. And the CEB, I pray that you will be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes from Jesus That's Christ. That's different. That's really different. But it's interesting just to think about the difference between like, may you do all this so that you bring forth the fruit of righteousness. Like mm-hmm. that's a nice goal. Mm-hmm. But I also like that may, may you be filled with love and knowledge and insight so that you will be filled with righteousness that comes from Jesus. So mm-hmm. it's like... It's not something you yourself bring out, but it is something that you become available to and Christ puts into you. Like, I really am drawn to that reading of it. Yeah. And I especially love that the metaphor here of fruit or harvest is like, this is, this mm-hmm. is what's going to nourish you. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you want to add on this section or shall we move on? I think that I, I wish someone would say this to me. <laughs> I just think this is such a lovely, like, I just think this is such a lovely thing for Paul to say. And like, I feel like kind of just overhearing it. I feel so affirmed, you know, and I just like, I'm really drawn into this. Like we, we need to learn how to say things like this to, to one another and hope for things for one another. I feel like that is sort of lacking in my own practice, both what I offer other people and what is often offered to me. Yeah. Okay, so pretend I'm speaking directly to you, Bobby. (laughs) It's going to make me laugh as I read then. (laughs) I'm going to pick up in verse 12. Yeah, it doesn't work after verse 11. But (laughs) but anyway, (laughs) I don't want anybody to say this to me. (laughs) I was about to say that last part to me. It's too late. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters have been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. Dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. Man, Greek sentences are hard to read, or maybe just Paul's. These are really long sentences. (laughs) They are, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Paul, you know, and the other thing about Paul is worth saying is he probably dictated his letters to an amanuensis who would then Mm -hmm. write them down. Mm -hmm. And so you talk differently when you're trying to compose than when Mm -hmm. you're just like talking off the top of your head. Yeah. We know Paul could write because at the end of some of his letters, he'll say, I am signing this letter with my own hand. And at one point, I forget which letter it's in. He says, look how big my letters are. (laughs) Like, you know, like like my... (laughs) Four-year-old who's learning how to make letters, like, you can recognize them, but they look really funky. So I think Paul was, you know, he was able to write, but he did not compose these letters in writing. He talked them out. And they, he, he is often quite convoluted in his, in his sentence structure. All to the better of introductory Greek students. Good luck, friends. Yes. Good luck. <laughs> yes. Good luck. So you get the sense in the beginning of this that... Well, I get the sense that maybe the audience is really distressed about his imprisonment and he's offering comfort to them. I think that's right, Amy. So you've got this group of people who care for him and they know that he's thrown in prison. And so, you know, I think there's personal concern here, you would imagine, like Mm -hmm. they wish for the well-being of Paul. There's probably also concern for the movement, like Paul is a major figure in their experience of what it means to be followers of Jesus. Now he's been thrown into prison. They may be getting in a hard time, as I was mentioning earlier, from other people who are skeptical of Paul. And now like, ha ha, look, he's thrown in prison. Yeah. And so like, he's, he's a failure. Like, clearly this is not successful. Like all of these different sort of anxieties, I think are probably at work in this community. Mm-hmm. And I do think Paul is exactly trying to say, this, it's, it's all okay, y'all. Don't be anxious about it. 
however it turns out, he's going to end up saying, it's going to be, it's going to be all right. What a strong faith that is. I mean, like I'm picturing those like, you know, circles of, I don't know, circles of grief, circles of trauma where like, there's like the person most impacted by whatever has happened. And then these sort of like concentric circles outward of people who are a little more removed from the trauma. And Paul is at the heart of this. And as the, as the leader for this community has the job of also comforting the people who are, who are more removed from it. That's just, I mean, I guess, I guess clergy are often, and not only clergy, but community leaders are often in that position. And I just have to marvel at what, what that, what that takes. Yeah. Now, Paul isn't, I mean, whatever you think about Paul, and I, I think lots of different things about him that are, <laughs> that are not always compatible, but he was not afraid of anything, I think, which you said previously. Yeah. And he's always thinking about the well-being of others. Yeah. It's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Do you think we need to talk about here? I, I mean, Paul says, like, this has actually been good. It's been, it is yeah. good for the movement that I've been imprisoned. Yeah. I almost want to say, like, how, how so? How would someone else be made confident in the Lord by Paul's imprisonment? Is it just like, wow, if this guy is so sure, like it gives him an opportunity to prove just how committed he is? Yeah. Or do you think it's something more than that? I think that's a really great question. And, you know, this passage reminds me of the passage we read a couple of weeks ago in Acts chapter 16, where Paul and Silas are imprisoned, actually in Philippi. And you remember this text and they're sitting in the middle of the jail cell and they're mm-hmm. singing songs mm-hmm. and they're praying mm-hmm. and everybody's listening to them. And then in that text, the miraculous thing happens and mm-hmm. the jailer is converted. Like, mm-hmm. And that's just how I tend to read this is that Paul gets thrown in prison and now he's just talking to everybody in prison. He's explaining to them, I see. you know, like, oh, hey, Praetorian guard, like, let me tell you about Jesus. And the kind of thing you and I were just talking about where we were saying, you know, Paul is, and he's an amazing person and he's suffering so much, but he, do, he just seems to be so supportive and joyful and like, it's going to be fine. And, you know, like he was kind of working on us a little bit there for a minute, right? Where, yeah. Where just his sort of, you know people like this who are in difficult circumstances and they're so like positive about it, so confident about it, that yeah. it has an effect on you. I think that's what's happening is Paul's just living his, living his life in confidence and talking about Jesus and caring for people and not worried about his own outcomes. And it's having an effect on, on people. Yeah, I think that comparison is really, really, really helpful. And, you know, it's making me think when I was graduating from college, I applied for this internship with a social justice organization, a Jewish social justice organization. And one of the questions was, have you ever been arrested? Like, as in the right answer to this question is yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. But that is not who I was at that moment in yeah. my life, you know, I really was quite beholden to the rules as they were. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's different the way that arrest is, is used in our modern culture as a way to draw attention to things that people need to pay attention to. Cause you know, if people right. get arrested, it gets into the news and then, you know, you sort of force people to take a stand. And so I think it's important to, you know, to draw out the differences, but also Again, the way that sometimes you have to have these kinds of encounters with the criminal justice system in order to sort of press forward your your issue. And it is it's 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 scary. Not for Paul. Paul's not scared of anything, but <laughs> he does at least he doesn't let on that he is scared. That's exactly right. I know. Sometimes I'm like, is he for real? <laughs> yeah. But he seems to be for real. He seems to be for real. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right, Amy. And you know, it's, it is different in the ancient world than it is today. But also, you know, we talked in that Acts 16 passage about how Paul uses his jail time mm-hmm. to point out the injustice of the criminal system. Like, that's what he does. Like, you wouldn't have done this to me if you knew I was a Roman. That's right. And so he, it was, you know, he wasn't jailed 
he did not intentionally get jailed in order to yeah. use that, but he was jailed and he figured out a way to use that to right. sort of spread. We've also talked about this, especially in Luke, but also in John's gospel, that it's exactly the innocence of Jesus who is killed by the system that exposes the sinfulness of the system. So these kinds of concepts that you're talking about, being imprisoned in order to s- spread a message, mm-hmm. you think about Martin Luther King and mm-hmm. that, and that mm-hmm. whole civil rights movement, yes. those kinds of things, it's, I mean, it's, it's obviously different, but those things are happening here. Yeah. And one can certainly read Paul that way. Like, you know that I'm innocent. You know I'm here for Jesus. Yeah. And, and look what they're doing to me. Happened to me. Happened to Jesus. Might happen to you. But this is, this is the way we stand for what's true. The other thing that I really like here is in that very, the very end of verse 14, others, brothers and sisters, have had more confidence to speak the world boldly and bravely because of my jail time. Yeah. So they see me going through it and, it, and they think I could, if Paul can do it, I can do it. I mean, at least I guess that's what's happening. I mean, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like we forget that that's an option. Yeah. You know, until someone else does it and you're like, oh. That's right. We don't we don't have to lay down just because there will be consequences. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Should we push through to the end? Well, I think so. Okay. So I'm picking up in verse 15. Some proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. These proclaim Christ out of love, knowing that I have been put here for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true, and in that I rejoice. Man, he is a magnanimous fellow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He's he is a better person than I. Okay. <laughs> well, okay, but what exactly do you think? Like, who are these people who proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry? Like, what are they? Is it like some kind of one-upsmanship over over Paul? And like, what would that look like? I'm having trouble picturing it. Yeah, I mean, this is a compl- it's a confusing little passage. I will I will say, and exactly what. Exactly what's going on is not entirely clear. One thing that sometimes causes some confusion is it's it's not that Paul is saying whatever you say about Christ is fine, right? Mm -mm. No, he's saying you're actually proclaiming Christ. Like you're you're saying what is true about Christ. It's just what are your motivations, right? Sometimes people's response is like, well, people say all kinds of things about Christ that like that's not fine, and I'm opposed to that. Paul very much is opposed to sort of misrepresenting Jesus too. Yes. So here what we seem to have is people saying, explaining correctly the gospel, but they're doing it out of selfish ambitions that somehow hurt Paul. I think the way that I can make the most sense of that is there were rival apostles in the early church, and Paul talks about some of them in his other letters. And, you know, I think these are some folks who are taking pleasure in proclaiming the gospel because they know it, you know, Paul can't do it. Paul's in prison. Maybe they're bragging about how they're not in prison or they're sort of putting Paul down because he is in prison. Like you should listen to us and not to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the way that I can make sense of it. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what makes sense. What makes sense to you? I think that makes sense. I mean, I get, yeah, I guess what I'm picturing is that, you know, we've talked so many times about the way that religion gets mixed up in, in our strivings for power. And, and it's really interesting to me that here Paul seems to be saying, like, I don't care. Like, yeah. whatever, like, whatever's motivating you, use it. You know, like yeah. we, we talk in, in the Jewish tradition about the Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Hatov, like these, the evil inclination, quote unquote, evil inclination that we have yeah. and the good inclination that we have. And the, the Yetzer Hara, the, the evil inclination is things like ego and appetite. Yeah. And it can, it can get way out of control, but it can also press us to do really important things. Yeah. And so maybe there's some sense that 
Maybe there's some sense of that woven in here that like, if it is ego that drives you to want to convert five more souls, then yeah, okay. At the end of the yeah. day, all that matters is that you have, you know, saved these five souls and whatever got you to do it. Like, I don't want to say the means justify the end because that, that has much more sort of dark uh, associations, but but there, I feel like, yeah, I don't know. The purity of intent here doesn't matter. Yeah, no, I think that's really helpful. And, you know, like, I'm just trying to think about, I'm thinking, you know, academically in my world, you know, like, if you, if somebody takes an idea that I have shared someplace and they use it as, it's, as though it's their own idea. Yeah. Like, I can, I can be upset about that because somebody has taken my original thought and not that I've ever had an original thought, but like hypothetically, (laughs) uh, and they've taken that idea and they've sort of made it their own. And I can think like, Hey, that was me. Like, and I could go and try to clarify the record or I could be upset about it. I want credit. Or I could say, look, there's like my interpretation that I think is a good interpretation got out into the world and it doesn't matter whether I got credit for it or not. Yeah. The other connection I could make is that, you know, in the church world, I'm sure it's the same in your world too. Like there are some people that I suspect are in the ministry because they really like that people admire them for, mm-hmm. you know, preaching on Sunday mornings. Yeah, they want to hold court. And like I could spend a lot of time saying, you know, so and so is not like they're a terrible preacher because they are just in it for the glory. Yeah. I think what Paul is saying is like who cares? If what that person is saying is the gospel of Jesus Christ and it is showing knowledge and insight that lead to love and righteousness, like power to them. If they're more Mm -hmm. successful than I am, like good for them. Mm -hmm. If they're taking, you know, things they heard from me and they're making it, you know, in the world in ways that I, you know, having success that I'm not having while I'm here in jail or whatever, like good for them. Like stop worrying about people's motivations or how their success compares to your own success or why they're doing mm. what they're doing and just celebrate that the gospel's getting out there. Like, again, I think Paul is a better human being than I am because I really like I, that all is, of those things yeah. I really struggle with. That is, that is hard stuff. I mean, I remember years ago, you helped me think about sort of a similar question of, of when I, when I encounter people in my work life who just seem to take themselves really quite seriously. Yeah. And want to do a project together with me, you know, I I sometimes have the inclination to say like, no, I can't, I can't work with someone who takes themselves that seriously. I just can't, I can't do it. Like I have like an allergic reaction. And what you said that I still think about all the time is sometimes it takes that kind of energy to do the work that's necessary to get the ideas out there. And if you are, if you don't have a drive to say like, no, my thought is important and I'm going to put it out there and your idea is not going to go anywhere. Yeah. So yeah, it seems like Paul has even taken it a step further than that and saying like, I don't even care if it's my, it doesn't matter. Like you can take me out of this entirely. That's exactly it. The point is that the word is spreading and. Yeah. And that's a good thing. That's right. And what Paul, what enables Paul to do that, I think is, you know, he doesn't, I mean, Paul has his own ego. <laughs> like, um, we all. Which you maybe don't get right here in Philippians, but what Paul really wants to think is that none of this is his anyway. Like this all comes from yeah. Jesus. It yeah. doesn't originate with Paul. It's like that, that issue in the Hebrew scriptures about who owns the land and what, do you, what can you do with your land? Well, yeah. God owns the land and you're responsible for it. That's, Paul thinks the same thing. These are, Christ Jesus does not, is not my idea. Right. Yeah. And so I can't, I can't claim ownership anyway. And so however that gets out into the world, it's a, it's all good. And I think it's even, even one step beyond that where whatever their motivations are, like you don't have to be pure yeah. of heart and, uh, you know, yeah, totally taken by the, the full, you know, like your cup doesn't have to oh, overflow yeah. with that love yet in order yep. for you to successfully spread the gospel. I think one of the things I've so appreciated about Paul is that he seems to, his motivation seems so pure. Like, yeah. 
And so then for him to say, I don't care what these other people's motivations are, on the one hand is totally in keeping with what he's been saying. And on the other hand, I feel like this little bit of resistance to like, but I thought, I thought coming from that place of like love and longing and compassion was the ultimate thing, but it's. Maybe it's the ultimate thing in that in terms of that's where we're trying to go, but it's not the prerequisite. I think that's right, Amy. I think what Paul wishes in his heart of hearts is that everyone would be filled with knowledge and insight that leads them to overflow with love for others mm-hmm. and that therein would lie the proclamation of the gospel. Yeah. He wishes that for you and me and everyone and for himself. But if there are people out there who are not doing that, I mean, you could imagine that if people are proclaiming the gospel in ways that are like taking a dig at Paul, his followers could then spend all of their time trying to defend Paul yeah. or trying to point out how these other people are not really as righteous and right. loving as they could be. Right. And now nobody's proclaiming the gospel. We're just, we just right. have We've a gotten into infighting. intramural yeah. fight. Yep. yep. Yep, yep. And so he would love it if we were all doing it out of good motivations, but if we're not, it's not worth it's not worth fighting over because that's a distraction it's from a the distraction. gospel. Mm. There's a lot to think about in this text. There is. And it's one of those texts that we started out the reading saying, I don't think I have too much to say about this. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> famous last words. Yeah. What is what is feeling most urgent to you today? In our conversations, I'm often drawn to the last thing that we were talking about because I feel some energy about it (laughs) (laughs) in the moment. But I think what is really connecting for me in this text is that part earlier in the Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. in verses 3 through 11, where Paul just expresses his gratitude for the people and the good work that they've done. And I remember our whole history from the very beginning until now, and I'm so grateful for you. And I just love that model of what Paul is offering there. And I kind of want to go and do that, you know, and just think about all the people who've been part of my work and part of my life and part of my current ministries and just express my gratitude to them. It's it's nothing particularly profound thought-wise, but just what a practice that would be to say to the people who have been with you on the journey, who are currently with you on your current journey, I'm so grateful for you and, and let me tell you all the ways. Mm-hmm. And then the prayer he offers in verse nine, my prayer for you is that your love might become even more and more rich with knowledge and all kinds of insight. Like what a lovely thing to to pray for somebody that you might overflow with love. And the more things that you learn and the more insight you have, the even more loving you might become. Mm. And I just love, like there's such a gentleness and hopefulness and appreciation that Paul is expressing And I, you know, thinking about not just like individual relationships, but communities that I'm a part of. And if we really could just take a break and think about each other and say these kinds of things to one another and wish these kind of things for one another, I really think that would go a long way toward toward making the, the world a better place. That's so, so beautifully said and so deeply true. And while I don't think I could totally abide by having a mission statement from the New Testament in my <laughs> in my <laughs> professional work, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I have yeah. to think about that. I mean, yeah. what a what a mission statement for this study, the study that we do, the study that people all over the world do of this text. That our knowledge and insight will yes. feed into an overflowing love and help us yeah. help us love better and more completely and more precisely and more. I don't know, powerfully, complicatedly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's really all there is. I think that's all there is. Yeah. What do you see when you look at this text, Amy? I'm really glad that your, what you raised up was what you raised up because I think that has to be raised up. But since you did, now I can ask something else. I am just really struck in this story and also the last one that we read that you mentioned of, of Paul being in jail, the way that I just draw this message from the text that's like, 
wherever you are is where you are needed to be. Yeah. And there is truly important work for you, for you specifically to be done there. And I think it's really easy to say, like, I can't do, I can't do what I want to do in this position, or I don't have the job that I want, or I don't have the power that I want, or I don't have the et cetera, et cetera, that I want. And and there's nothing wrong with aspiring for change in those things. But I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that the real work only happens somewhere that we're not. (laughs) Yeah. I think the real work happens exactly where we are. Mm -hmm. And I think Paul's a good example of that. I love that, Amy. And I I appreciate the way you said that. I I thought for a second you were going to say where you are is where you're supposed to be which I strongly resist <laughs> that idea that like whatever has happened to you has happened to you for a reason. But where, what you said was where you are is where you are needed. And I love that reading of it. So the way, at least the way I hear it is no matter your circumstance, however you got here, the place where you are right now is a place where you can make a difference. Mm-hmm. You don't have to think about whether you're supposed to be here or whether God intended for you to be here. Like, I don't know that God intended for Paul to be in prison at this moment, mm-hmm. but he found himself there mm-hmm. and he absolutely could do a thing that was needed from there. I, I think that is so rich. Wherever we find ourselves, there is a need that we can meet. Mm-hmm. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Mm, good stuff. Good stuff. Next week, we continue in this book. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. One of the most famous passages of the New Testament, an old hymn, sometimes called the Christ hymn. It's really really a lovely text. I'll be interested in what you think about it. I look forward to it. Well, thank you for a good conversation, my friend. I'll see you next time. You too, Amy. See you then. for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. Special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest supporters, Chris Gilmore, Gene Kirkwood, Lori Walkie, Jenny Valentine, and Kelly. Just Kelly. We don't know who you are, but thank you. Join us again next time as we continue with Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Until then, keep on digging.